Welcome to Fraud Busting. I'm Tracy Brown, the Fraud Busting Body Language Expert. I've spent the last 20 years reading people, uncovering secrets hidden in plain sight to find the truth in crimes, politics, and billion dollar business deals. It's time to dive in so you can beat the fraudsters at their own game and build your bottom line. Former FBI agent Jim Casey visits fraud busting today. We talk about automobile fraud, how he got primary evidence to solve who blew up Pan Am Flight 103 over Lockerbie, Scotland, and the corporate asset protection he's done. We also talk about the high-end investigations he's doing now, including deaths and kidnappings. These stories will amaze you. Enjoy. Hi, it's Tracy. Just a quick thought. What would you do with $4? With that same money, a hacker can buy all of your info. I mean, social security number, credit card numbers, passwords, health insurance info, and yes, even your kids' information. Now, I've searched around on the dark web, and it's a good bet your info is out there for sale waiting to be used. If you're lucky, it'll just be a few charges to your credit card. But smart hackers are tapping into your credit to buy TVs, cars, houses, use your medical insurance, and even take over your banking and investment accounts, effectively kicking you out of your own accounts. You're the one that's going to be stuck with this big problem have mystery bills due, and need to get your money back while repairing your good credit. Now, the folks at ID Shield know this and have the solution. I've teamed up with them on their ID theft insurance. It's comprehensive, it's inexpensive, and it will let you rest easy. They will replace any money you lost, give you access to their team of licensed private investigators to do whatever it takes to repair your credit score. Yep, They'll do the heavy lifting and spend all the hours on the phone and the time it takes to restore your online reputation to pre-breach levels. You, your money, and your reputation are worth more than $4. Treat yourself like it. Go to fraud-busting.com slash idshield to learn more and get covered today. It's fraud-busting.com slash idshield. We'll see you on the protected side when you get there. Jim, thank you so much for coming on Fraud Busting. It's a real honor to have you. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So now you uh, are a retired FBI agent, uh, but you have a lot more going on. So why don't you just tell tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So um, I was a law enforcement officer for 32 years. I was a police officer. Uh, for about five years, I was a, a special agent in a, kind of a smaller department that many people don't know, a federal department of the U.S. Department of State Diplomatic Security Service. I did that for a couple of years, and then I went to the FBI, and I was there for 25 years. I retired in 2012 as the uh, special agent in charge of our Jacksonville field office in Jacksonville, Florida. And since 2012, I've had you know a variety of uh, post-bureau careers, as we call it. I've been a corporate uh, VP for asset protection. I've worked for myself a couple times doing private investigations. I've been with a uh, local security company here in town that did, still does a lot of like vanguarding operations. And recently we spun off a, a completely separate company from that called FCS Global Advisors, where we're doing high level uh, investigations, background investigations, due diligence for mergers and acquisitions, um, corporate work, uh, litigation support, things like that. 
Oh, wow. Okay. So we have a lot we're going to talk about, but let's, let's get to know you a little bit first. So, um, what is the most unusual thing you found yourself doing during lockdown? Cause we're, we're coming out of it now. And I know you're in an area of the country cause you're in the Southeast, I think, um, that's, that's a little more, um, uh, open right now than maybe where I am here in Colorado. So what's, what's the craziest thing that you found yourself doing where you're like, I can't believe I just did that. <laughs> well, you know, it's kind of a good news, bad news. I, I talked about how we spun off this company and we, we talked about it for a couple of years because of my background and the owner of the big company, uh, First Coast Security, FCS, the man guarding operation. He's a former NCIS agent, a fascinating guy himself. Um, and we'd always talked about, you know, we really need to spin off and, and do investigations and not just man guarding. So we had decided probably around the first of the year to go ahead and do that. And we launched it on March the 1st. Well, that's, you know, right in the middle of COVID hitting everything. Oh, yeah. And, you know, law firms shut down, businesses that would ordinarily do, you know, have you doing investigations and things like that. It just wasn't happening. Um, but it did leave us a little bit of time to, you know, do the licensing, get all of the requirements for the state back up to do some marketing efforts, get together collateral and things like that. So we've been doing a lot of that. I mean, I've done a lot of podcasts. I've written a number of articles for newspapers. I was uh, on Fox News a couple of weeks ago talking about Antifa versus uh, neo-Nazis and things like that. So just kind of getting the word out that the company's out there and, you know, kind of what our specialties are. Oh, wow. So that's the craziest thing you did? You didn't like binge uh, or uh, hoard toilet paper or anything like that? There was no <laughs> toilet paper to hoard. <laughs> I did not watch Tiger King. You didn't? <laughs> oh, didn't. my gosh. <laughs> well, um, I'm glad you had a, a calm and successful lockdown. So that's good. Most Now, most of the law enforcement guys that I've talked to uh, do, because I think y'all are used to uh, operating in emergency circumstances quite well. So good for you. So yeah. let's let's jump in, because, um, you know, we we uh, we talked a little bit last last week and and you've had some pretty interesting cases that you've been involved in. And I imagine a few more have even bubbled up over the weekend since since we chatted. So. Um, craziest case you've worked on involving fraud? What do you think that is? So the craziest case with fraud would definitely be, you know, a, a long-term operation we did when I was assigned to the Detroit division. I was in Detroit for almost nine years okay. uh, when I first joined the Bureau. And we had a um, really successful and really fun case to work on. It's probably the kind of thing that the FBI doesn't do a lot of anymore, just because the priorities of the day with counterterrorism and counterintelligence and cyber have really, you know, become the, the top efforts of the FBI. But at the time, we worked on a uh, an undercover operation where we created our own uh, import-export company, and we professed to uh, export high-end Mercedes Benzes, BMWs, Jaguars, boats, and things like that. We were supposedly exporting those overseas. And the method we did it, the price that we were willing to pay for these things created the aura that you, you, you had to know that it was a, an illegal operation. And just to, you know, just to put a fine point on it, there were also a number of targets we were going after. There were people we knew that were in this business that we couldn't catch. And the only way to catch them was to entice them as sort of being a middleman that could give them, you know, pretty good uh, return on their investment. And so we did that operation and it really lasted like 18 months. It was really crazy. And, you know, one of the top targets we went after, we were very successful at, at, uh, at getting him to do business with us. In fact, he sold us seven 
stolen Mercedes Benzes. And he, you know, the guy was really top shelf. He went over the top to uh, change the VIN numbers on these things to create false titles to, you know, have keys made. I mean, it was really a good scheme by him, but we were so successful with him and we were bringing in other people that he didn't know that we had to kind of keep this thing going because we couldn't shut it down um, to, to prosecute people. So we ended up, you know, ha- buying a lot more merchandise than we ever needed or wanted. And we had to get extra warehouses to kind of move this stuff. So when the bad guys came in, they'd think that it went off to Kuwait or somewhere like that. So that was probably the, the biggest fraud related thing. We, we recovered over, I don't know, $1.8 million in cars and property and things like that. Prosecuted, I think, 21 different people. And you know, it was just a, it was a really fun project to work on. <laughs> fun. Prosecution is fun. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so let's, let's talk about that. Cause uh, now is that kind of thing still going on and where, where the, cars from the states and then you had overseas buyers or how did because mercedes are from overseas anyway so how how did all this really stack up okay so in a nutshell i'll go over the scheme that this that this uh thief used and it was a good one he he would basically identify a a mercedes-benz that he wanted to steal okay he'd see it on the street right and he could he could run the vehicle identification number he could look at it write it down and then he would, now some of this you couldn't even do today because computers and, and technology have made this difficult. Um, but he would, he would write down this vehicle identification number, and then he would literally call a Mercedes dealer and say, you know, I lost both of my keys to my car. And what Mercedes would do is make a new key, and they would make it off the vehicle identification number. And so he would know who owned this car, and he would have like an associate of his go to a third state, you know, like if this happened in Michigan, he would, he would say he was in Pennsylvania and he lost the car and you have an associate go to the dealer with a fake ID that they had made up a driver's license that looked really good mm-hmm. as the owner of the car. So they would just give him a key to the car. The associate would bring the key back to Michigan and they would just go use the key to start up the car in the middle of the night and drive it off. Oh man, that is gutsy. It is. And then, so they would take it a step further. They bring it to a garage and he would literally take out the VIN plate that's up near the window. Every car has that little vehicle identification number. And he had a bunch of blank VIN plates that he somehow acquired from a factory in Germany. And he'd Uh restamp the VIN plate with a different number than the original VIN number. And then he'd create a fake certificate uh, of origin, like the car was new. Don't, these cars would only be like a year or two old. And uh-huh. he'd have another associate go to a third state and re-register the car in the fake number. Now, that's the part you could never do today, because when these uh, DMVs in different states would start running the number that you bring them a certificate of title to, they'd see that it's a, it's a bogus number that doesn't exist. Uh-huh. But at the time, you could do that. That would create a real title. It'd have a fake VIN number on it, but it'd be for that car that you had just put the VIN plate in and then he'd sell it. Wow. And so, so was he selling it like, I don't know, 50% off or, uh, what, what was the, so you're really onto it. That was a, this was part of the scheme was he would have other friends that were just as shady as him uh-huh. or, you know, at least, uh, of, uh, shady character. And he'd call him and say, you know, I've got this $50,000 Mercedes Benz. I'll sell it to you for 25,000, but here's the deal. You can never take it in to Mercedes dealer and have it serviced because while the DMVs couldn't run this number and Uh figure out that it was a fake car, the Mercedes dealer could, because they were keeping track of cars by the vehicle identification numbers. Uh He would, he would tell him, you know, if you ever need a service, you let me know. I I got a guy. Oh no. (laughs) 
<laughs> he had a mechanic that would literally fly around the country fixing the cars. And this oh, really? is how we caught the guy. The mechanic became a source. And so, you know, we knew kind of what his, what the gig was and, you know, that's the way he did it. And you know what he'd do to a couple people? Huh. He, he would call them up after a year or so and say, Hey, you got this $25,000 car. It's worth 50 that I sold you. Sell it back to me for 25,000. Report it to your insurance company, and they'll give you fifty thousand for it that it was stolen. Oh, and and some of them did it. Some of them would say, "No, no, no, I don't want to do that." I mean, I'll buy a car from you that I can claim I didn't know was stolen. But you know, doing insurance fraud is kind of a bridge too far for me. Uh-huh, steal uh-huh. it back from him anyway because he had a key. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> and then do oh, the whole scheme, and then do the whole scheme over again. It was amazing. Oh wow! So um. So, so you guys had to set up a, a fake uh, import-export business to buy some of these cars? or right. Yeah, okay. So then um, what ended up happening? Well, interestingly enough, once we had a, you know, we had, I think we bought seven cars from him. And we didn't need to. We could have bought two. We could have bought uh-huh. one, really. Right. But as I mentioned, we had other people that were kind of in on the scheme. With, um, I'm sorry, different schemes. Uh-huh. And so we had to kind of keep this one going to you know finish up the other schemes and eventually we arrested him and um and he fled you know after he was arrested he was let out on bond and he fled uh-huh. went overseas and we featured him on america's most wanted they actually made a you know a really cool america's most wanted case where they recreated the whole thing and uh-huh. america's most wanted and as a result of america's most wanted eventually we captured him again when he came back Oh, wow. Yeah, because America's Most Wanted, they just do the unsolved cases, right? Just to try to catch Well, they really wanted to do this one because, you know, a lot of the cases were sort of, you know, husband murders wife, husband disappears. I Uh mean, there were a lot of cases that America's Most Wanted did that were a lot alike. And this one had a lot different angle to it. It was kind of a unique case. Oh, yeah. Wow. And so that took you, what, 18 months to do? Yeah, it was like 18 months that we were under, the, the, the project was ongoing, and then it was another, you know, year by the time we got everybody prosecuted, so really almost three years uh-huh. to run the whole thing. Oh, wow. So so when you caught this guy, and you had him, and you're interviewing him, what did he say? What, uh, he, did... Was, he, he didn't say anything. He was not the type of person that, that talked to us about anything, and, you know, basically just talked to my attorney. I don't have anything to say. Uh-huh. He, he was, he did, he gave us nothing. And oh. then, like I said, he got bonded out and then, then disappeared while he was on bond. Now, what did he look like? Did he look like one of these guys that you'd think is a criminal or was he a starch shirt and looking, uh, no signs? I mean, what's the... He was a lawyer. Really? I kid you not. Yeah. He was a lawyer, had his law degree and, you know, just couldn't stop himself from doing frauds. And he was well known in law enforcement because despite the fact that he was a lawyer, he was always in trouble with the police, like as a youngster doing you know, little things like when he was young, you know, uh, breaking into parking meters or doing oh. other insurance frauds. I mean, he was just somebody that just had a bent toward being a criminal. Wow. He just got a thrill out of it. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, um, what, what's going on like that now? Cause certainly someone has, is doing something like that now. Have you heard yeah, I mean, my my guess is that especially on on both coasts, you know, the East Coast and the West Coast, that with um, you know shipping containers and things like that, mm-hmm. uh, and and again with you know, U.S. Customs, with the FBI, with organizations that used to really chase this stuff. Not that they're not doing it now, but it's just that the priorities have shifted so much mm-hmm. to the national security arena right. that I think that there are a lot of cases where 
you know, vehicles are taken, put into shipping containers, shipped overseas, never to be seen again. Uh-huh. I think that absolutely continues to go on. So how can people uh, protect themselves from this kind of, uh, like buying the wrong car? I mean, uh, or most of the buyers knew it was stolen, but some of them might not have, like, how, what, are the, what are the signs that people can look for when purchasing a vehicle? And, and I think, and the reason I'm asking this is because um, my husband has this idea that he wants a sports car. <laughs> and so he is looking, 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 and he has been looking for a long time and he's looking at pricing and, and um, whether it's a, a BMW or Mercedes or he's even thinking about like a Shelby, like mm-hmm. what's, what's the red flag that, 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 that uh, guys like him need to look for? So most reputable dealers now, they're only dealing with reputable, you know, inventory. Mm-hmm. And another thing that's really made this uh, much more difficult is like Carfax, those companies that keep track of, you know, vehicle histories and maintenance mm-hmm. and things like that. A lot of that has gone away and, and pushed it well underground so that people who other, who have no interest in buying cars like that are probably not going to get caught up in it. I mean, you okay. can make sure that you buy a car that hasn't been totaled now or hasn't had flood damage or been in a fire. Years ago, you couldn't. I mean, there was there were many other schemes associated with, you know, vehicles back in the day that, that don't, it's not that they don't exist now. They've been pushed down to a much lower level that, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of innocent people probably can't get caught up in it. Oh, well, that's good. Um, yeah, Carfax, man, uh, with all those uh, flooded out cars, with all the hurricanes and everything. Um, that, and then and even even the uh, oh, what, VW and all those cars that were, uh, right. where they had the engine uh, where it would trip uh, so right. that it, right. it would register differently when you went to test it. Um, right. I saw a lot. We have a lot here. Um, it's down south of Colorado Springs, where it must be where they uh, take all these cars because there was just thousands of them. Yeah, it's out there, and like talk about a huge corporate fraud, man. That is that is one of them for sure. With all that uh, VW uh, engine efficiency, <laughs> oh, that cost them billions, probably. I'm surprised they're still around. I don't know how you could survive that. I don't know either. I don't know. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. So, um, luckily we won't get caught up in auto fraud. Good folks won't. Um, we may have given some other folks an idea or two about what to investigate <laughs> to, get, <laughs> to get a good car. Uh, so now you have worked on, and this was, we have to get into this because you said you worked on diplomatic security, uh, for the state department and you, uh, ended up with some evidence of a very important uh, incident. So why don't you talk about that for a little bit, like from start to finish? And because um, I think that's just uh, talk about because fraud fraud really runs. It's not just like consumer fraud, right? It's right. Uh, it's state run, and and got, really all governments I think are involved in fraud of some kind, even. Sadly, the U.S., right, which we are taught to think uh, isn't, but we're just as involved as, as anybody else. So uh, what'd you do? Like, you have to. This is so cool. OK, so, you know, in fact, some friends of mine still tell me, oh, you know, Jim, you're credited with, you know, helping solve Pan Am 103. This was the, the flight from London to New York, uh, 1988. December of 1988, right before Christmas, if folks remember, that plane took off uh, from London Heathrow. It got over Lockerbie, Scotland, blew up, 
and 257 people on board were killed. So that was 1988. So go back two years, uh, almost two years to the day, or two years and two months. So 1986. 1986. So I described that I was with the Diplomatic Security Service, DSS, and that's an organization of about, I want to say today, they're probably 1,200 agents, and they're all over the world. They're the ones that are responsible for security at embassies. They're responsible for our ambassador security. They're responsible for passport fraud, visa fraud, a lot of visiting dignitaries to the U.S. that people think that the Secret Service protects. The Secret Service protects heads of state. So if a lesser uh, government official from any country that would have a threat came to the United States, they would be protected by diplomatic security agents. And so in 1986, I was with DSS, and I was in a very small counterterrorism unit three of us um, working in, in state headquarters. And there was an incident in the country of Togo, which is on the west coast of Africa, okay. uh, Lome, Togo. And Togo was a very friendly country to the United States. Many of their neighbors were not friendly. They were friendly with the USSR. Remember, it was kind of a bipolar world then. You were with the United States or you were with the USSR. Very well, it's few a little people. Bit, it's, it's a little bit like that now. Then you got China. So you got, you got your, your three you can right. pick from. <laughs> right, right. But at the time, it was pretty much one or the other. Okay, okay. So, so there was a, uh, an invasion of this small country of Togo. And um, the president of Togo, President Adema, thought that it was Libyan-backed. Now, this was when we hated the Libyans because they had attacked our uh, military base in Germany. If folks remember that, there was a, a bombing there. American service member was killed. President Reagan, you know, came on TV and told everybody that there were intercepts, uh, you know, from the NSA that proved that it was a government of Libya that did that. And he launched attacks against Libya. So this is in the throes of all that happening. And so the president of Togo says that these Libyans, these Libyan-backed terrorists from neighboring countries like Chad and Ghana, they they have launched this attack into my country to try and take over because we're were friends of the United States. And so they wanted the United States government to come investigate this and, and help prove that the Libyans did this. So I went over there with a very small team, myself, uh, two uh, agents from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms. There was a third um, officer that was from, we'd like to say, uh, other government agency, OGA. Oh, um, what's that? That's not, not sure. secret. <laughs> but it is. So at the time he was he was an undercover officer, so I won't reveal what agency he was okay, with. He's probably okay. not there anymore. He's probably long retired, but I I'll still respect that he's with the other government agencies. So the four of us went over to Togo to investigate this this uprising from you know a border skirmish. Okay. And we get there and there's all kinds of things that they had saved. The Libya the, the uh, Togo forces had recovered you know, weapons, plastic explosives, blasting caps. And so they, they gave us access to all this stuff and we photographed it and tried to do some, you know, some analysis of it. And now wait, so, so they got all this stuff from where? They got like, it from the terrorists. You know, when these oh. guys came across the border, there was a firefight and they oh. killed, you know, 30, 40 bad guys and then took all their arms and things like that okay. and brought it to this, you know, building to show us. Like an evidence room kind of situation. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. That'd be calling it Evans room would be kind. It was more like a thatched roof, uh, oh. <laughs> open air, um, you know, part of their army base is what it really was. Okay. All right. So yeah, every evidence room is different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so before we went over, um, I went over to, um, 
I guess the somebody from the Pentagon came over to Maine State because we were going to try and bring whatever we could find back, like plastic explosives or blasting caps that we knew existed. And so I had this uh, this cylinder. It was probably a foot and a half, 18 inches long and maybe, you know, six inches wide. And it had a screw cap on it. It was like really high end uh, aluminum. And this, this guy was a Navy SEAL. I remember him telling me, okay, this is what we use to transport explosives. So if you you find some explosives there, just take the top off, shove some of that explosive down there and put the top back on. I said, this thing kind of looks like a pipe bomb. And he says, it kind of is. So <laughs> I, I literally brought this thing over in a diplomatic pouch that said, uh-huh. you know, and I had a letter from the secretary of state saying, you can't inspect this pouch. Whatever's in there is secret and classified. And so we did find some of this plastic explosive. We put it in there. We found some blasting caps. We put it in there. And here's the critical piece of of, uh, evidence that we found. There were two timing devices that were there. And the Togolese let us have one of them. And they were fairly sophisticated. They really stuck out at the time in 1986 as being, you know, much more sophisticated than the rest of this this things we're looking at. Everything was rusty. The plastic explosive looked like it had been buried underground and crystallized for a number of years. Oh. But these timing devices were kind of new. You know, like what like, did it look like? Was it like a like something you'd see on a movie or, or Yeah, I mean it was probably like as big as a small cell phone these days and it had some <laughs> digital numbers on it and you know, a green keyboard type thing. I mean it was, you know, okay. for the time it was pretty sophisticated. Uh-huh. So, now, what, now, was it attached to anything or was it just a little clock kind of? It was just like a little clock by itself, two okay. of them sitting side by side. Okay. And so we kind of negotiated to let that, let us have one of those. And we put all these things into that cylinder that I brought and we put it back into the diplomatic pouch and we brought it back to the United States, back to DC. And, um, you know, kind of wrote up a report of everything we found and, you know, brought the timing device to the FBI, because I wasn't in the FBI at the time, had them take a look at it. They said, very interesting, never seen anything like that. It went over to the other government agency, the CIA, <laughs> and they, they looked at it. And this part's well known, so I can talk about that. Okay, okay. Um, they looked at the device and they said, no, we haven't really seen this thing either, but it looks pretty interesting. And they literally, literally put it on a shelf in, you know, the basement of the CIA or something like that. So it's okay. 1986. Okay. 1988, Pan Am 103 blows up over Lockerbie, Scotland. About 1991, late 1990, early 1991, I now I'm in the FBI. Okay. And I get a phone call from somebody who would go on to become a friend of mine who was in Washington, D.C. I was in Detroit. And he said, uh, hey, are you the same Jim Casey that was in diplomatic security back in 1988, in 1986? And I said, yeah, I am. He says, uh, you're not going to believe this, but that timing device device you brought back from Togo, we think that was one of only 20 devices that were ever made by a Swiss company called Mebo, and all of them were sold to the government of Libya. Oh. Which is like critically important to show that the government of Libya was behind this because it took a while to kind of unravel the mystery of Panama. There were a lot of different theories as to how this happened. People thought that the PFLP General Command, which is a Palestinian group, did it. Other people thought the Iranians did it because if people remember uh, a summer before that, uh, the U.S. Navy accidentally shot down an air Iranian plane over mm-hmm. um, the Gulf, and there were tensions there too. But this, the fact that this timing device came from Libya was critical to prove that you know the Libyans did it. Mm-hmm. And so what they had me do was kind of recreate my reports and everything, and write them in FBI language and on FBI paperwork and things like that and kind of redo this. And then 
know, that was 1991, and it took until uh, literally the year 2000 for the prosecutions to take place. And that's so I kind of worked with the FBI agents that were uh, handling Pan Am 103 and the Scottish National Police, and you know, put the help put the process my part of the prosecution together and testified at the trial in the Netherlands of the two Libyan terrorists who went on to show did it. Now, okay, so there's a little piece skip there, I, okay. at least for for me as a layman on the street. So, did they find one of those timing devices in the? Because you said that plane exploded, it was like 11 miles of debris. Right. Yeah. So, did they find one of those in in the junk pile, or what? How did that? That happened. Yeah, so it, they literally were, labor, were able to, um, you know, find a piece of the timing device, a, a similar one, one of mm -hmm. 20, mm -hmm. that was inside of a, a suitcase. Uh, it, it had been secreted, they believe, inside of a, um, a radio. Remember boom boxes? Yeah, yeah. We used to have a boom box. I think it was kind of secreted inside of a boom box, put inside of a, uh, a suitcase. And then just to firm up the evidence, there, there was some clothing and the suitcase was identifiable and they were able to track down, you know, where the clothing came from on Malta and the fact that there were uh, Libyan intelligence officers who had traveled to Malta right about the same time as the clothing was, was uh, purchased. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of good stories out there, a lot of good books that have been written kind of tying this thing up. Uh -huh. uh, good stories on the web that you know people can read all the evidence that kind of came together once it was determined that this timing device was you know part of what brought down the plane oh wow that is fascinating so were you like how how is it when you're you're you know you're in service and then something um like comes together like this are you like are, are you just like over the moon ecstatic are you surprised like how does how does that really because it's like, like you solve something, but it's like really a bad situation. So how does how does that emotional, mental, uh, I guess, state work uh, for you? So, you know, the I'd say the single thing I learned, um, you know, being an FBI agent for 25 years and being in law enforcement for 32 years is to always have an open mind because, mm -hmm. you know, and I saw it. Um, I did it myself. We all do it. You know, you get um, tunnel vision, you get uh, locked in on a theory and you know, oftentimes the way a case comes together is not the way you thought it was initially. Mm -hmm. You know, the person you're convinced did it, didn't do it. How they did it is not the way it really happened. And, you know, I saw so many cases and frankly, we had some unsolved cases. And part of it, I think, can be attributed to having tunnel vision and going down a road where you think that this theory is exactly how something happened. And it didn't. I mean, mm -hmm. a case like Pan Am 3 is a classic example. You had competing theories. You know, there were government agencies and, and foreign countries that all were really sticking with their theory mm -hmm. as to how this thing happened. For good reason. They had some evidence that, you know, their theory was correct, but nobody had, you know, all the evidence until, mm -hmm. until it kind of came together. And that, can, that happens in investigations. So tell me this. How would that investigation have been helped or impeded in today's Internet world because everybody has their conspiracy theories and like how many of those actually have have teeth do y'all pay attention to any of that how does how does what's your idea so the higher the profile of the case the more you're going to have controversy and conspiracy theory because people know about it right you know the, and as opposed to you know a local crime that happens in your city where you know people in the community know about it but it doesn't really make national news 
the bigger the crime, the more theories you're going to have. Mm-hmm. Uh, a case like Pan Am 103 probably would be helped along today by um, more video because the two uh, Libyan intelligence officers who were involved in this thing, we kind of know where they were um, traveling between, you know, Libya, Malta, um, uh, Germany, you know, all of their travels we kind of kind of know about, but we probably would really know about if we had the kind of video today that's kind of everywhere, uh-huh. in, uh, modern airports and countries and things like that. You'd be able to go find evidence of, you know, hard evidence of where these guys were. Mm-hmm. So that clearly would do it. Same thing with communication devices. I mean, there's so many crimes right now that, you know, are helped along by figuring out where somebody's iPhone was at a certain time and place. I mean, you can have people and the criminals know that now too, right? So it's almost like if you're traveling somewhere without your iPhone, that's evidence that you're yeah. to cover your tracks, right? Who does? Who if does it was that? Still for too long, if it... right, right. <laughs> yeah. If you're in Miami oh, yeah. and your and your and your cell phone's in Jacksonville and your ex-wife ends up dead in Miami and you're Jackson. <laughs> yeah. You got some explaining to do. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. So, um, you have done, or tell me, tell me a little bit about, um, retail that you've done. Cause you were at Steinmark for a while. Correct. And, um, what, what was that like? And, and, and the reason I want to know that is, is cause I want to know how can we apply that to, how can retailers apply what you learned during your time there now, because we're opening back up, mm-hmm. which is leaving the, like more customer contact means more, uh, retail fraud, whether it's, um, just flat out theft or maybe it's uh, return, return fraud, chargebacks, things like that. What, what did you learn then that we can apply now? Like, what, are you seeing trends in that area? Let's talk about that quick. Yeah, so I was there for almost five years as the VP for Asset Protection. And, you know, my, <laughs> my advice to retailers is there's a lot more fraud than you want to know there is. Yeah, oh, yeah. Or admit there is. It's, it, is, it is pretty rampant. Um, and a lot of it is because... Um, you know, retailers want to be uh, customer friendly. That, that's the nature of the business, right. right? And so I think they they willingly overlook a lot of fraud because they're doing it in the name of being customer friendly. Return fraud is a classic example. I mean, people almost think there's a constitutional uh, right to return merchandise. There's no such constitutional right to return anything. It's just that most retailers have very uh, lenient return policies, uh-huh. especially during COVID. I mean, they really kind of have to, right? Somebody bought something expensive and the end of February and here it is June and they haven't had a chance to go back to their retailer because something doesn't work. I mean, I totally mm-hmm. understand that. Don't get me wrong, but there's an awful lot of fraud affiliated with, uh, with returns and some retailers are really on top of it. And some of them are reluctantly on top of it. They can really drive their profits by staying on top of that. Mm-hmm. Because as I used to say, you know, with return fraud, um, or any type of fraud, really, from retail, you, you lose twice because not only did somebody walk something out the door, you know, most of your um, inventory systems are not catching the fact that that item is now gone, so you're not replenishing it, so you can't get the next sale. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, there's there's just a lot of fraud associated in retail, and you know, like I said, I think a lot of retailers are are on top of it. Some of them get a bad name for being on top of it because they're they're very great. Go to Reddit. Reddit. Uh, you know, the website, they yeah. list like who's the most friendly and unfriendly to, um, you know, shoplifting and fraud. They know where, how many asset protection agents are in different stores and things like that. Oh, wow. Well, there also, there's also a listing um, that I saw about how like the, the dollar amounts 
about where they won't contest fraud and it's um, re return fraud or credit card fraud, however it is, it is a high number. Like Target was about $20,000. And that means you could buy 20 TVs at Target and get all the money back, right? Um, if you were smart to work the system. And I mean, they weren't the only one. And they chip were like and super is, high. I think chip and pin has solved a lot of this because mm -hmm. it's very hard now to, you know, buy something with a, you know, with a swiped credit card. Right. Those were, those were tailor-made for fraud with those magnetic strips because they were so easy to copy. Mm -hmm. With a chip, you can't copy it. So um, that has, I mean, the, the banks had to be dragged into this reluctantly. Yeah. Uh, and I was there at the time we were going through that conversion from, you know, magnetic credit cards to chip and pin. Th those magnetic credit cards cost the banks because they're the ones that are putting out those credit cards, right? Bank of America, Wells mm -hmm. Fargo. It costs them about 50 cents to send you a credit card. Okay. It costs about $5 for that chip and pin. So you oh, multiply really? $5 times every credit card out there. And to your point, the banks were saying, we'll just pay it. We're not, mm -hmm. you know, we're not going to just willy nilly just start giving out $5 credit cards to every credit card holder in the country. And by the way, everybody has more than one. Oh yeah. So, I've probably yeah. got three or four. So yeah. Multiply that times 350 million Americans. And that's a lot of credit cards. So it was, it was a struggle to get the um, the banks to kind of go along with this, um, but that has stopped a lot of that fraud associated with credit cards. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, except maybe maybe even comment on this: the, the card not present. Uh, so whether that's Amazon or um, uh, other, uh, you know, Best Buy, whatever. If if you're ordering at home, all bets are off, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the way they're tracking that is. Um, and you've probably seen it if you're trying to use an address that doesn't marry up or a zip code or something like that. Mm -hmm. And that's where it becomes hard. Um, you know, if you're a bad guy trying to get something delivered off a stolen credit card to where you want it delivered. I mean, unless you're right there to get it when the Amazon truck rolls up and that happens. Oh yeah. But, They'll stock those trucks and they know their patterns. Oh yeah. It's, right, it's not a right. small commitment. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But I mean, we all still get that call from, you know, Amex or Visa saying, Hey, did you just order, you know, plane tickets to Switzerland or a widescreen TV. Nope, wasn't me. And they know it because somebody tried to, you know, change the address or something like that. Mm -hmm. Well, yesterday we got a package and we were out and porch pirating isn't too bad in our neighborhood. Um, but I noticed that they sent a picture that, uh, a, um, a picture of the, of the package on our porch. We're like, we for sure delivered it. Anything else that happens is on you now, folks. Right, so right. I think that's been a so, super simple right. solution to a lot of that, um, a lot of that fraud. So, um, okay, okay. I wanna talk about what you're doing now, cause you have a lot of neat stuff going on. Mm -hmm. So how are you helping people? What's your specialty? To, this is your chance, you can toot your own horn. <laughs> It's all you. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll, here's what I'll here's what I'll say. We have a couple like um, case studies on our webpage. Oh. So I'd say if people are really interested, go to that webpage, which is fcsglobaladvisors.us. Fcsglobaladvisors.us. Okay. And then we have an Intel page there. It's just a tab called Intel. And then on that Intel page are some of the investigations that we've done. Um, you know, that kind of highlight the things we can do. Mm -hmm. I would say some of the most interesting cases I've done, you know, as a private investigator are death investigations. Um, there are a number of investigations that happen surrounding deaths where either the family doesn't accept the police version or 
Uh, there's some controversy about it. Um, I did. Oh, because death- you, yeah, you had one that you told me about. Um, yeah. Can you get into that for a minute? Because that was, sure. I read about it on on this uh, at FCS FCS Global Advisors. I, but you got to talk about it a little bit because it's so fascinating. Sure, and you know this one. I mean, you got to be careful with um, privacy on all of these things because sure. your family's involved. But I, I was approached by uh, by an estate attorney. Um, who knew of me and knew knew what we could do. And his interest was that an estate existed for an individual who was at the time probably about 30 years old. And he had literally disappeared when he was about 20 years old. And he knew when he disappeared uh, at about age 20 that at about age 25, he would ac- have access to this estate. And it was, you know, more than $10 million. Okay. So not something that most people would just walk away from. Mm-hmm. And so the, the individual who disappeared had siblings and the siblings were being told by, you know, the bank and the estate, Hey, we haven't seen this guy for 10 years. He's not come in to try and access the money. We can't get a hold of him. We're going to distribute the estate to you. And the siblings were like, we don't really want to do that. If he's still around, we don't want him to think we took his money or that he's mad at us or anything like that. So they wanted us to prove to the extent we could, you know, that he was not alive. Now, this is a hard one. It's kind of like trying to prove a negative, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so what we did was kind of look, do a deep dive on the guy's background and mm-hmm. found that he had between the ages of like 14 and 20, uh, he had been arrested like 26 times. Serious drug problems, in and out of prison, robberies, uh, stolen cars. I mean, he just got in a lot of trouble. And so the first clue that he's really not around is all of a sudden um, he, he stops getting arrested. When you've been arrested times between age 14 and age 20, Uh it's unlikely that in the ensuing 10 years, you just stop doing these things. Uh He also on the last, during the last arrest, when he'd been arrested uh, for the final time and bonded out, he told one of his siblings, I'm not going back. Um, not going back to prison. I'm going to find another path. Okay. Uh, so shortly after that, he, he took his car and he went from Florida to Arizona and we, knew, and we found out that he sold the car in Arizona close to the border and he sold it for cash and, you know, probably had several thousand dollars in his pocket and had disappeared probably literally across the border into Mexico. Mm-hmm. So I talked to a couple agents who were, you know, subject matter experts could, could testify as expert witnesses on being a fugitive. I talked to FB, uh, DEA agents who could be, testify as expert witnesses on what would happen to somebody who walked across the Mexican border with several thousand dollars in their pocket and had a drug habit, what would happen to them. And then I was able to engage some of my former FBI colleagues um, in other cities um, who had literally worked in uh, South America, Mexico. He had left other clues too. This young man had, had um, he said that he might go to Costa Rica. He said that he knew his natural father. He was adopted. He knew that his natural father was Bolivian. He might go back and see his natural father. So we were able to literally go to all these countries through, um, you know, other investigators and have records like death records and police records and things like that checked. And so by putting all of this together, it created a pretty compelling report that this young man was not around anymore and Mm -hmm. probably passed away within the last 10 years. Wow. So then did they distribute the money? They did. I and mean, in fact, the judge actually wanted the family judge that was hearing this case uh, in Fort Lauderdale. I'm in Jacksonville. He actually made me come down to Fort Lauderdale and come in his courtroom and explain to him 
exactly what my theory was and how I, you know, everything that I had done because he wanted to assure himself for the rest of the family uh-huh. that, you know, the right thing was done. Oh, wow. Now, how long did all that take? I want to say it was uh, a couple months of investigation. And then there was mm-hmm. a period of time where the report kind of made, I did a pretty comprehensive report. And it, it made its way around, you know, between the state attorney, the bank, mm-hmm. the family members, eventually to the court. And then I would say maybe another six months or so that the judge kind of summoned me down to tell him, you know, what my findings were in person. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you've got, what I get from that story is that you've got a global network of really experienced, top-notch law enforcement that's going to help you out when you get um, engaged, right, with with a client. So, So who else are you, are you working with? How else can you help people? Let's give people some ideas, right, so that they know who to call when something like this goes on. Sure. So I would tell people, um, obviously, I'm biased toward the FBI and our ability to investigate things. But to your point, you're absolutely right. I mean, we do have this network of hundreds of hundreds of former agents that are sort of in the same space. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's almost like, as I like to say, it's almost like a 500 person or more um, investigative firm because, I mean, I literally have a hard copy book. We don't put it online because we don't want it to be you know, move around or anything else. It's, it only exists in hard copy and we can call each other and say, Hey, I know you're in Denver. I'm in Jacksonville. We've never met. I might know you, but I might not either. There's a lot right. of the but here's what I need. You know, what, you know, what are your parameters? What are your costs and things like that? And so I know what his work product is going to look like. I know what his writing is going to look like. I know what his training is. He knows he's going to get paid because another mm-hmm. former agent's not going to screw him out of a, you know, going and working on a case. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, we really kind of collaborate with each other like that. Oh, I love that. Okay. So what's your favorite kind of client? We know you do death investigations, hopefully not like a lot of those, but like who, who are you working with? Um, how can we give people ideas of some of the things that, that you are specializing in? So litigation support, you know, high end um, litigation, expensive litigation where uh, lawyers really need to have, a thorough investigation or reinvestigation done. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have the ability to engage a lot of subject matter experts. So somebody that you know needs to do a uh, uh, a survey of a facility, or um, I even have people that you know are psychologists that can do like behavioral assessments and things like that. Yeah. Or a body all- language expert, you might need sometime. Correct. There you go. <laughs> things like that. Exactly. Exactly. So you know, attorneys always have a lot of needs. So that's certainly mm-hmm. a clientele. Um, we've done uh, for like a merger and acquisition. So a company is thinking about either being acquired or going acquiring a company. They know what they can read about them mm-hmm. if they're publicly traded, but what if they're not? What if it's a smaller operation? I did that sort of thing for law firms that were thinking of, you know, coalescing. So, you know, what, what can we find out about the firm, the uh, principles and things like that? Things you're not going to find everywhere. Oh, wow. Um, so, so there's nothing you can't find out. That's what I'm getting out of this little segment. <laughs> There's nothing we can't try and find, that's for sure. Okay, okay. Um, okay, and, and people can find you at FCS Global Advisors. It's .us, right? .us, correct. Okay, okay, good deal. And um, what else do people need to know about you? Anything, any last parting advice uh, about yourself, about how to protect themselves? What's the, what do you think? So, I mean, I think people just be smart. You know, the old saying about it, you know, if something seems too good to be true, it probably is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, don't don't try and be cheap about 
major decisions. Just use your common sense. Mm -hmm. Your mom was smart. She told you good things. Listen to it. Got it. Got it. All right. Cool. Well, Jim, thank you so much for coming on Fraud Busting. You got to come back sometime. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah. You bet. Thanks for joining me. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast, rate and review it. I'll see you next time. Thank you.